right, guys, if you've got your Bibles, awesome. If you don't, you've got them tucked into the pews. You can take that and keep it. If you don't have a Bible, start flipping to Acts chapter 2. As you do, I, I just want to bring your attention to the words on the screen. You hear this in mid-tree vernacular all the time. And the reason that you hear this is because this is a, sort of a short form of how the Bible defines what a healthy, growing Christian is. And what we're going to find, we're only going to look at six verses this morning in Luke chapter 2, but what you're going to find is Luke, who was a physician and wrote both the Gospel Luke as well as the book of Acts, is basically going to give a diet and exercise regimen to the early church. And what I wanted to mention to you is what we at Midtree would define a healthy, growing Christian as is somebody who is increasingly beholding who God is, believing in his son, and becoming everything that God has called them to be. But I was thinking about it this week. I think sometimes it can be difficult to walk in uh, to a church if you're not well-practiced in kind of how church goes or if it's a new thing for you, or if you've been going for years and you can't remember at all two sermons ago, which, don't get me wrong, I'd have to sit there and think a little bit myself too. I just want to let you know, this is actually a great way to study the Bible. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, whether it's in a sermon, whether you're listening to a podcast or just reading your Bible in your own time, asking these three questions of any text would be a phenomenal way to take your study of God's word a little deeper. Beholding, how do I see God amazing in this text? What, what causes awe and worship for me? Jot it down. Number two, believe. What is this text requiring me to have a bigger faith for than I currently have? Yeah, the more you read God's word, the more you realize you never graduate, you never fully arrive, that God is constantly challenging his children. So what is it that God is going to require faith for you? And by the way, there's going to be a little bit of this at the end of our text. Like, uh, anyway, you'll see, you'll see. And then finally become, what am I supposed to do with this? So let me get you guys caught up. Matt, if you would uh, uh, throw up kind of the event explanation. Uh, nope, not that. All right, this one. So uh, the, this is how we've been attacking Acts chapter 2. We work through books of the Bible. So if you're wondering, what are we going to be doing in the weeks ahead? It'll be Acts chapter 3. And uh, what we've realized is in writing the book of Acts, here's how God has brought it, brought it to us. In verses 1 to 13, there's an event. The Holy Spirit shows up. It blows people away. They start speaking in tongue, tongues, different languages. A fire exists on their head. And so then in verses 14 to 41, Peter has to explain to these thousands of people who heard this noise and saw this sight. And so what does he do? He explains the gospel. He, he goes back to the Old Testament and tells them what's happening today, then back to the Bible, tells him he does that three times, and then today we get to see what the effect of that is. What happens when God's Spirit shows up and people understand it is this spiritual family begins to live, and that's what we are going to be looking at this morning. I'm going to read through these six verses and then pray for us, Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they, being the disciples, the believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, not just believers, but their neighbors. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Father, this is your word, it isn't mine. Written before the foundation of the world in your mind and delivered to us through your spirit thousands of years ago and as true today as it was then. In fact, more real in the sense that we have seen it be true millennia after millennia. And this little gathering representing a a very small portion of Christians and believers around the world is doing the same rhythm that your spirit set in place all those years ago. But Father, may it not become mundane for that reason. But rather, may we realize that we are caught up in this unstoppable force of your spirit that will cascade and crash like a wave into eternity. And may we joyfully ride it until you bring us home. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All families have rhythms. Different things that you do. I I, I don't know what your family traditions or rhythms are. Our rhythms have been a little off. Uh, We we have two dogs. When I went to bed two nights ago, we had two dogs. When I went to bed last night, we had 11 dogs. We we knew that we were going to have puppies. We thought we were going to have four or five. Darby, my sweet favorite dog of all time, overshot it by double. And so I'm running off a little bit of sleep. My wife is running off a whole lot of no sleep as it's sort of been a panic-stricken birth, make sure it's breathing, suction it, tie off the umbilical cord. And every time I walked out the front door, I was like, okay, I'm going to go get something done. A kid ran out, dad, there's another baby. And at first it's like, this is so exciting. And then it's like, oh, you know, like it just hits you, like the weight of it just hits you. That is not a regular rhythm for our family. That is what you call a memory day. That's a day that your kids remember for the rest of their lives because it's cool and it's gross and it's disgusting, but it's beautiful and they have to wrestle with this whole thing and mom and dad are there to help them. That's not a regular rhythm. A regular rhythm for your family might be something like praying over a meal before you eat. Might be reading the Bible together or going to church together. You may have a certain vacation spot that you hit all the time. But every family has little rhythms. And the thing about rhythms are you tend to not notice them after you've been doing them for a while, which is why dating is so fun because you go meet another family and you realize you thought you were normal. And now you realize you're not normal at all. Your family's whack in all of these kind of ways. And it took you getting involved in another family to realize How sort of interesting and unique your family is. Well, God's family is the exact same way. And so Luke is going to deliver to us the family rhythms that God has established. But in that, there really is a warning for the Christian. Because if you stop noticing the rhythms of your own world, we as Christians begin to stop noticing the rhythms of ours. Let's just look at the first two verses. And Luke is going to give us one diet and four exercises. I'm going to save the fourth one because it's going to take a heck of a lot of faith, all right, for everybody in this room because you're alive and you're American and it's going to be one big old stretch. So let's just focus for now on one diet and three exercises. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. I have very, very good news for you. Larry said, man, it's a rough crowd. Wait till you have to start talking conviction. Hey, who was talking about their sin today? Everybody get excited about that. You don't have to worry about that for a minute. I'm going to build you up before I tear you down, all right? Here's the build up. 
here's what Luke says you ought to be doing. You ought to receive a steady diet of God's word. Guess what? You're literally doing that right now. You can pat yourself on the back. You can look at the person sitting next to you and say, we're nailing it right now. We're doing exactly what God has called us to do. And you would be 100% correct. One, the only diet that we see in God's word is God's word. We never graduate from that. There is nothing better for you to be absorbed with and to consume than the word of God. And then he jumps into a few exercises. Exercise number one, fellowship. Time together. Guess what? You're already doing it. You nailed it. You're sitting in a pew closer to somebody than you want to. You're already exercising faith. You're like, am I going to get their name? It's going to be awkward if I don't, but I didn't at the beginning. Now I got to do it at the end. You're getting right. Fellowship. It's awkward and it's wonderful and it's beautiful and it stretches us. And then he says, they were breaking bread. Now, some of you grabbed a donut. Some of you may not. So I don't know how many of you guys are nailing this. But when this is referring to breaking bread, it's probably not talking about a meal. I think that is probably consumed in the fellowship side of things. Back in the day when people gathered together, they ate food. Lindsay and Mitch were just talking about it. When they're talking about breaking bread, what they're most likely referring to is the Lord's Supper. What is it that we do when we gather together? We do it the first Sunday of every month. They're gathering together and they're remembering the work of Christ. And then he gives them one more exercise, prayer. And we've already done that. So let me just say, we don't always get to say this when we read the Bible. The Bible has given you four things to do, and you're already doing them just by being here. That's pretty cool. We'll get to number four in just a minute. But for now, it's very, very cool. However, these are rhythms that become well-duh rhythms. All right, Will, so what's the sermon on? I need to read the Bible? I already know that. Oh, I'm supposed to go to church? I'm supposed to take seriously the Lord's Supper? It's supposed to be, like, special to me? I'm supposed to pray? This is a really revolutionary sermon. Thank you for this. I finally learned something new. I can walk out the door and live a different life. That's not the point. The point is this. How cool is it that Christianity has not changed in 2,000 years? I can barely turn on my phone or my iPad without it saying, congratulations, you got an update while you were plugged in overnight last night. I, like the, I write my sermons on, on my iPad, and I love it. I used to do uh, writing on paper, but I, I really, really enjoy this. And almost every week before I start writing, I go into the app store, and I see, is there an update? Have they changed? Have they added fonts? Have they added colors? Have they done something like this? How many times in our life does something stay the same way, and we not crave a different update? But here, Christianity has not needed an update for 2,000 years. And if the Lord delays, if Jesus tarries in returning, this will never change as the rhythm of God's people. But here's the warning that comes with it. Every one of these activities, God's word, fellowship, remembering the Lord's supper and prayer, every one of these activities is easy to be present at physically but spiritually, mentally, and emotionally be distant. Every one of them is incredibly dangerous in that sense. And I'll tell you why I think it is. I'm sure it was the case back in the day. They found some old pulpits from England. A pulpit, this is a music stand. My pulpit, I've got to work on my pulpit. Um, A pulpit is like the thing that the Baptist preacher pounds on to keep you awake. And if you're smart, you make them big and you make them hollow so that you get like a... And it like, right? And it runs through. That's what a pulpit is. This has been a part of the church since the earliest of days. And you'll love this. 
in England, Protestant Reformation is happening and preachers start preaching a little bit longer and then a little bit longer and then a little bit longer. And so what they began to, this was a cool technology uh, about two or 300 years ago. They would go to a, a glassmaker and they would say, we need an hourglass to build into the pulpit. This is a real thing so that the pastor knows when he's preached for one hour so that he can just chill out, okay? Because we've got fields to plow and other stuff to do. They found one of these, right? Like, it lasted all these hundreds of years, but this is the funniest part. Most of the time, the hourglass didn't go for an hour. The guy who was building it was significantly more concerned with you than he was with me, and most of them ran for like 40 to 48 minutes if you actually timed it. The guy's like, you know what? I'm going to serve the Lord and the people, and I'm just going <laughs> to tighten it up just a little bit. The thing that is so dangerous about all four of these things is none of them are fast and none of them are efficient. In my world, I call things that are not fast or efficient bad, less than. And yet here in God's word is this call for Christians not to change based on how quickly our technology moves with our phones, our watches, our cars, or whatever else, but to slow down and to be present. Now, I want to start with, with a few questions, but first I want you to just notice this underlined word. Go back one, Matt, if you don't mind. This is what God's word is calling us to, go, uh, verse 42. Are you devoted? That's the word that God uses in this text. And they devoted themselves to. When you are devoted to something, it looks different. You give it your time. You give it your attention. You give it priority status. And other things fall to the wayside. And Luke is looking out at every one of us. And he is saying, if you have ever felt in your relationship with God like you are stagnant or stuck or like you've plateaued, or lifeless, or empty, or ritualistic, or like you're just checking the box, Luke is looking you in the soul, and he's saying, I'm going to give you the solution right now. All of us will go through peaks and valleys, but some of us choose to live in valleys because we do not cast our eyes to the heights of who Christ is often enough. Here's my question. Are you present when you're present when being taught God's word are you present when you're present when fellowshipping with other believers are you present when you're present when taking the Lord's Supper when praying are you present when you're present okay there we go we're clicking all right good stuff little delay on that that's all right and nailed it all right <laughs> just leave them up if you decide, you know what, I've heard this before, I've seen this before, get to something that's going to be a challenge for me, you've already missed out on the Holy Spirit this morning, in my opinion. He can do more than this, but I don't think he's going to do less than this by challenging you here. I can be somewhere and not be there at all. I, I, in fact, I would say I have a unique problem with this, that when I am somewhere, my mind is already in the next two things. If I ever look at my watch and I see the next thing coming up, my heart is no longer where I am. And God's word is challenging every one of us, one diet, four exercises. Are you willing to do this? I'm going to ask you to follow me down one rabbit hole. The rest of this morning is a fastball down the middle of the plate. 
I'm going to ask you to just chase me down one rabbit hole. I'm going to try to speak very slowly because I know that I speak fast and I know that we don't have the sound panels in yet and half of you are hearing what I'm saying twice, which might just be what the Holy Spirit thinks you need to hear for now. (laughs) I want you to follow me down this rabbit hole. In 1993, I heard a sound, a melody. I don't know music. It may not be a melody. I don't even know what that word means. I heard this sound, and my imagination now, whenever I hear it, goes somewhere. I'm going to invite you. Let's see if we can do it. Trent's looking at me like we can. Wait for it. Trent, you're smiling at me. Does that mean things are working or they're not? Trent's like, how am I? That's my job. Nope, that isn't it. That's a worship song. Although I'm glad that's what y'all are listening to back there. I don't think this is it either. This is not it. I'm about to call my son up here. Is Thad in the room? Karen Ann, is Thad here? He's serving in kids. That's not it either. Don't worry about it. We gave it a good shot. In 1993, Jurassic Park came out. Do y'all remember? How does... That was it? Well, I know those are songs from Jurassic Park. I'm trying to find like the, when the doors open, going in. That's it? That's it. All right, shh, let me enjoy it for a minute. Okay. That's not the rabbit hole. (laughs) When you hear that music, where do you go? Now, look, some of you have maybe never seen Jurassic Park or Jurassic World, and we really need to hang out. Uh, That's an offer. When I hear that, I see big wooden doors. When I hear that, I think my mom and I went and saw that in 1993 when I was 11 years old. There was this whole new world that opened up. I, when I hear it, I see huge brachiosaurs and a tyrannosaurus that always seems to Kool-Aid man through some wall. That's what I see. Am, I need to know right now, am I the only one or do you see it too? Is that fair? Okay. That is amazing. Follow me down this rabbit hole. It's amazing that without one word and just a sound, even though it took us about four tries to get there, that one sound can cause people who are not speaking or sharing any words to share an experience. You saw that movie or a movie that came in the franchise 10 years separated from someone else in this room and yet you have the same type of imagination that begins to kick. Now follow me down this rabbit hole. What I believe from the deepest part of my being is that our God is a creative God. In fact, it's the very first thing that we see. And that creative God builds things. And he builds things of his own imagining. But then he creates, special in all creation, a being that carries the, the Imago Dei. They, they, they are made in his likeness. And you can do something that is unique. You can imagine. You can imagine things that, that are so far forward and so fantastic. And every one of us can do it. Now here's what I know. Just follow me down this rabbit hole. 
God has created you with an imagination. But I also know that our enemy wants to steal and kill and destroy everyone who is made in the image of God. The Bible tells me that. But I also know this. The enemy, the devil, has never wanted a full frontal battle with the creator of the universe. No matter where you look in scripture, they don't have equal power. It's not like God has 50% and the devil has 50% and there's this big question mark on eternity. When Joel is being tempted, the Bible tells us Satan had to go and ask for permission. When, when evil is about to come into the world, the snake doesn't slither up to God during creation or Adam who was sent there to oversee. He comes in the back door and starts whispering in Eve's ear. Why? Because everything that God makes that is good, the enemy can't come up with a better thing than that. So he just has to tweak it a little bit. And that's what he does. He comes in, you can pick anything in the world. You can pick food. What a good thing that God has given us. And yet, all the enemy does, he doesn't give us a better food. He says, what if I get you to go to food for something it was never intended for? What if you go to food rather than being something that you're grateful to God for as something that fills you, something that can comfort you rather than realizing we were meant to pray to God for our daily bread. Food is actually supposed to build dependence, not comfort. You can take the exact same thing with, uh, with intimacy. I'll be careful of my words because of different ages in here. God created intimacy and he said it was very good from the very beginning. The enemy cannot come up with something better than that. So all he has to do is give this little virus of a lie that causes intimacy to skew ever so slightly to the side. And over enough time and over enough years, it will turn into an abomination of a thing that God never intended. The enemy is not creative. All he tries to do is bring in these subtle itty bitty differences but you were built to have a God-sized, holy imagination. And I believe from the top of my head to the bottom of my toes, one of the things that Christians today have lost is this vibrant, powerful imagining of what God wants to do in your life. I think you read verses 42 and verses 43 and you say, God's word, prayer, fellowship, Lord's supper. I've already seen that before. I've already heard that before. Give me something new. And I believe what God is, his Holy Spirit would be yelling at us is, there's nothing wrong with what I've created. You've stopped imagining what it could be. You've bought into it just being ordinary. Second Corinthians 10, three puts it this way. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Now when it says flesh, it means physical, right? So since the weapons of our warfare are not physical, when you fight sin, you don't pull out your pocket knife. When you fight the enemy, you don't pull out a nine millimeter. It's not going to work that way. But they are, wait, wait, since the weapons of our warfare are not flesh physical and yet they are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. You and I have strongholds in our life, most of which, if you're a good-looking, well-meaning, churchy-type person, are so deeply ingrained in who you are, you don't even realize the walls of Jericho that have been built up in your own heart. You don't even realize how much work the Holy Spirit needs to do to tear down this perspective you have on the regular rhythms of God so that you would find life in Him again. But what's fascinating about this passage 
is that word arguments. You see, you and I read this word arguments. We demolish arguments. Go ahead and go to the next part. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that's raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. If you go back to the original writings and the Greek, that word that we use for argument is used for thought and imagination. And when that's the case, the rest of this verse makes sense. It's saying there is a sinful warfare that happens inside of us and God's spirit's desire is to destroy the ideas and the imaginings that lead to pride. And instead, for you to cling to the ideas and the imaginings that lead to life. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. This is going to be our last moment in this rabbit hole and then I'm going to bring this up. As it's written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And then we read this verse. They met together and they prayed, they ate together, they fellowshiped, they went to church and they enjoyed God's word. And we say, I've seen that before. I've heard that before. But what God's word would be crying out to us is, no, I ha you have not seen this the way that God intends it. You have not heard this the way that God intends it. The type of fellowship that God wants for you is something you have never seen before. The type of Bible enthusiastic love for the word of God is something you have never seen before because you're still here and he isn't done with you yet. I, I, when we built our house, I, I was so excited most about the porch that went around the back. And I built our house with this grand idea. I'm going to sit on the back porch with my boys and talk about life. We've lived there for seven years. It's probably happened three times. Do you want to know why? Y'all are laughing. I'm like depressed and like jacked up because two nights ago, my, my wife was watching This Is Us and she's like finishing it out. I say she's watching. She's like... <laughs> watching This Is Us, and she looks at me and she says, I feel like we're running out of time with our kids. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I need to get on the porch. I had this plan. I had this idea. And now the kids are going to be gone. They're going to be in college. I'm not going to do it till the grandkids. Then I'm going to say, well, you're going to do it with the grandkids. And you're not even going to do it with the grandkids. How often in our life do we have these plans that never come to fruition? Can I tell you why I think that is? I don't think it's because they're bad plans. I don't think it's because they're ungodly plans. I think they're from God. I just think you're busy. I think I get to the end of the day and I excuse and justify away my lack of energy. I, I, I get to a place where I'm present, but I'm not actually present because I'm more worried about the next thing. I want to show you God's vision for the good life and then ask you to do two things if and only if you see it. He gives us one diet. By the way, that's the rabbit hole. What if your imagining is something that God has given you, that the enemy has hijacked? So these things that God gives us as a rhythm for life, you're supposed to continue to wrestle with. How does God want me to live this in a way that is beyond what I have seen or heard? 
Whenever uh, I, I go to the gym, speaking of diet and exercise, I almost always take a pre-workout. I love going to the gym. It's like one of my absolute favorite things. My favorite time to go to the gym is after somebody in the church calls me and gives me bad, difficult, or frustrating news. Just keep it coming. You're just making my workouts better, all right? I get it, like, or my wife calls and she's like, great news, I put three things on the calendar tomorrow. I'm like, that's not great news. So I go to the gym, like get angry, get sweaty, move on. But before I do, I always take a pre-workout. I'm not advocating that. It might be bad for you. I don't really know. But here's what I do know. I care enough about that 60 minutes that I'm going to spend in the gym to think about it and do something about it before I ever show up. And I wonder how many of us walk in that door without any pre-work done. The first time we pray is when somebody else does it for us. The first time we get into God's word is when somebody else reads it to us. The first time that we fellowship is when somebody else at the front door greets us. What if instead every one of these things that God has called us to, to imagine something better, we decide to show up ready? Are you present when you're present? In verse 46, we read this, and day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Do you see how they're meeting? In the temple and in their homes. They're meeting at church, then they're meeting in homes. This is our regular rhythm. But what's the point if you're not going to be honest and authentic when you're there? What's the point in coming here and the Holy Spirit telling you, you need to repent of this, you need to talk to that person, you need to receive prayer at the end of the service, and then you just grit it down and you squeeze it in and you say, maybe next week, maybe next week, not knowing if it's going to come. Most of the time when I've seen relationships fail, when I've seen friendships end, people think it's going to end because of this sin. It actually ends because they're not honest about this sin. That person would have walked through it with them. They would have shown them grace. They would have prayed with them. They would have encouraged them. But instead, we find these little rugs and we sweep them under. And God's word is saying, I've got something for you to see. And I've got something for you to hear that is so much further than that. When we take the Lord's Supper in here, we try to make it special. We try to elevate it. One of the things that we've started doing differently is somebody in the congregation actually bakes and makes the bread. And when I remember, I try to tell you who that person is not to steal their reward in heaven by naming them, but to let you know that this matters, that it's a family meal, that it's an amazing thing that all of us can gather together and say, how cool is it that we have this one thing in common that we need God? Jimmy Brooks is gonna be preaching a sermon about this in just a couple of weeks. When you pray, do you do any pre-work before you show up or do you just close your eyes with family, fears, and frustrations? Do the same four or five words begin every prayer because your life is not in the same place it was from the previous prayer to the next. Do we lean in? Are we present? There's a quote from a John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Corey Ten Boom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. There's truth in that. Both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even your own soul. Truth number one, speed will tear up a to-do list. It's just true. If you want to get a bunch of stuff done, get it done quickly. Speed will rock through a to-do list, but it'll also wreck your soul. You'll get to the end of a day, week, month, year, season, and wonder what you've even been doing in it. I think God has more for us than that. 
Now let me show you the hard part. Verse 44. All right. Let me just give you a little pre-work before we do this. Is God giving us an example or is this something that is an expectation? Verse 44. I'm going to read this real slow. And all who believed, all Christians who believed, were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Okay. Prayer's starting to sound really good. <laughs> I'm going to start taking that one real serious. I think that's the one I really need to work on. Bible reading, I'm getting serious about it. Starting the Bible plan, we've got some on the wall on your way out to the right as you go. I think I'm going to do it. Fellowship, you know what? We're going to get missional in this MCG because that verse is not exactly something that I am warm to. And there's a, there's a word that starts running through the minds of a lot of people in this room, especially if you're 35 or older when you read that verse. And that word starts with a C. And that word is, what is it? All right, let me read it one more time. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and distributing the needs to all. That sounds an awful lot like communism. All right. Let's talk about communism. That, that sounds fun. <laughs> it's funny how we can read a passage in the Bible, and if we like it, we're like, mm, yeah. And then if we don't like it, we're like, context. You know, it's 2000 now. Hang up, braided hair, context. If we like it, it's like God's word is true, thousands of years. And if we don't like it, well, hang on just a minute. <laughs> These are mixed linens, and that's okay, right? Old Testament Levitical stuff. <laughs> you have to keep reading the Bible because according to the Bible, the Bible interprets the Bible. Look at Acts 4.32. I, I, I'm going to, uh, Matt, if you wouldn't mind throwing that up. Acts 4.32. This is important, and it may feel like a, res, a release valve. But before you let it feel like a release valve, just hold a little bit of tension. Acts 4.32. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. All right, that's an imagining. This whole group of believers has one heart and one mind, one soul. They have this one vision, this one imagining for the future. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Uh, belonged is how it's put in the ESV. If you look in the CSV, it'll say claimed. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. So, fear not, there is private property ownership in the Bible, in the New Testament. Don't worry about it, you made it. All right, Will's not preaching communism. I'll consider coming back next week. Great, but that isn't all that it said. The Bible is not communist. Because we could never come up with a perfect utopia. God designed it. We're good at breaking utopias, not building them. But what we do see is this. There is ownership of stuff in God's economy. But the stuff that people own does not own them back. That's the difference. People own stuff in the Bible, but the stuff that they own does not own them. This is generous 
capitalism. This is somebody saying, I'm going to do what I can to be thoughtful and wise because I've read Proverbs, right? And I'm going to understand terms like compounding interest. And I'm going to try not to pay PMI. And I'm going to try to save rather than spend. And all of these wonderful truths that we'll hold on to. And yes, they're in the Bible. But don't hold on to that more tightly than you hold on to this. Don't hold on to that more tightly than you hold on to the reality that as much as they own stuff, they were ready to give it away. They were more concerned, not in what they accumulated, but in that what they accumulated could be used for the good of the gospel and of the kingdom. And this is the question. If all I knew of you was how you spent your time and money, which way would the arrow be pointing? Would stuff be greater than people? Or would stuff be less than people? If all I knew about you, if all your neighbor knows about you is the agenda on your phone and how you spend your money, which one of these things are they going to believe is the most important thing to you? The Bible's not preaching communism. It's not preaching universal health care. It's not preaching a standardized wage. What it's preaching is that Christians earn and when they work hard and they earn they hold on to those things with open hands and they look around and they say the greatest thing that I can do is not accumulate but distribute to those who are in need and this is radical generosity this is not one of the easy things that we read at the beginning of this verse pray yes Lord's Supper yes fellowship yes Bible yes but give my stuff away for the good of others yes we had a need come up in the church, and by God's grace, our church is able to have something that we call a benevolence fund. A benevolence fund is when we have a little bit of money that we can move towards somebody who's in need. And we have a cap on it because we want to be smart and wise and reasonable, right? These are all good things. And a need came to the finance team a week or two ago. And they looked at that need, and they said, you know what, guys? We want to give everything that we can to this. And they hit the ceiling. And then there was still some left over. And those people sitting around the table without anybody asking anything of them had an imagination and a vision for something that was so much more. And they looked each other in the eye and they said, the church is going to do what the church is going to do. But what if we, each of us, pull out our checkbooks and we step into this? And the entire need was met because a handful of people looked across the table into the eye of another and they said, what if we lived out this kind of radical generosity? And I'm telling you, when you do that, it changes lives. And it doesn't change the life you think I'm talking about. It changes yours. It changes yours when you allow things to be ripped away from their importance in your world. And this is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us this about Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus had life, more life than you and I will ever understand. He had a free life, a life that was free of sin. It was constantly full and in abundance. And he was able to move slow enough to sit with children in his regular day. And his life was full. In fact, the Bible goes on to say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he takes this thing, which he could have claimed and held as his own, and he pours it out on the cross. 
And he says, you want to find life? You want to find real life? You want to find a life worth living? You're going to find it by coming to this cross and laying down the things that you feel are so important but never fill you with life. I told you I wanted to show you God's vision for the good life, and I think it's that. I think it's loving God's word and eating on it every day. Continuing to meet together, to pray, to appreciate the broken body of Christ, just like we do regularly, and to imagine something better than what you've seen it be in your life thus far. And I do think that God is calling capitalistic, consumer-minded Christians to be radically generous. Here are the two things that I would recommend that you do. Matt, do we have uh, that passage with all of the ands highlighted? I never noticed this until I got ready to preach it this week. Bennett, if you want, you can go ahead and come on up. I just want you to see this. I read six verses to you, and maybe you didn't notice it, and I didn't until I was really studying this. Every sentence starts with the same word. I don't know that you see that in the Bible an awful lot. And they devoted themselves to the apostles. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and all who believed were together, and they were selling their possessions. And day by day they broke bread together. And, verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In every verse, God is showing us that if we would put our eyes on him, there is so much more wealth in letting go than in holding tight. And this, and this, and this. Can you imagine what God would do in a church if these are the kind of lives that we live? Can you imagine what your life would look like if this is what your life looked like? Consider adjusting your pace. It's the first thing. I'm going to ask you to do two things. If you are beginning to get an imagination for what God would have in your life, consider adjusting your pace. When I want to fix something, I get on YouTube. And now YouTube says, hey man, you want to jump to the middle of this clip? That's where the really good stuff is. Why? Because we need it faster. We used to make meals painstakingly with hands in dough, and I'm not advocating that. But then we were like, no, we need a microwave. That was too slow, so we made an Instapot, but that was too slow, so we made an air fryer. What's the point? Food was meant to be slow sometimes. We literally call it fast food. Nobody even thinks about it. It's like selling you the lie from the front in. The second thing that I would ask is consider prioritizing people. Consider your pace and consider prioritizing people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I think it's because of stuff like Mitch and Lindsay shared with you. Just doing life together. Let me tell you one way that I saw a church do it called a a five by five by five. If you're a note taker, jot this down. If you're not a note taker, I would still jot this down. Come up with five unbelievers in your world. One familial, vocational, commercial, geographical, and recreational. Do we have that, Matt? One person in your family, one person where you go to work, that's an unbeliever, one person where you spend money, one person that just lives near you and one person that plays where you play. Just think of one unbeliever for each of those and then do one of these five things. Pray for them or serve them or give them gospel-centered material 
or invite them to church or your home or speak the gospel to them. We'll leave this up and we'll post it on our social media stuff in the week. If you could get an imagination for what it would look like for you to live this kind of life, stagnation begins to die. And you begin to combat the very thoughts that the enemy would love to sell you. Jesus did not consider his life something to own or to claim, but he gave it out. Are you willing to follow him enough to give yours out as well? If you need prayer, we've got uh, Jan and Jessica in the back wearing prayer shirts. We'd love to pray with you. Stand with me if you would. Well, Father, as we lift up our voices one more time, doing something that your family does, a regular regular rhythm and a regular practice, may our words be the greatest thing, the greatest instrument that we have on this stage. May singing back your great truths to you be the greatest thing that we can do. Father, would you help us to slow our pace? There are people in this room who realize that whenever they're somewhere, they're never really there because of the next thing that's coming. There are people in this room who realize they've been clinging to stuff far too tightly to let go of it and to prioritize people. Father, may we have an eye, an ear, and a mind to imagine the family and the life that you would have us live as Christ poured his out for us. I ask all these things in his name. Amen.